You're listening to The Nerve, an English at SETU podcast. This episode marks our fifth anniversary of the podcast, so we would like to wish ourselves a very happy birthday and are delighted that here to celebrate with me today is the author Ashling O'Loughlin, whose young adult novel Big Bad Me is due for release in a week. The novel switches perspectives between sisters Evie and Kate as Evie discovers she is part werewolf in a spooky town where people are disappearing and sightings of vampires are going up. Ashling comes from a storytelling background and has written and co-written a number of other books. So a huge welcome to you, Ashling, and thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Jenny. It's wonderful. Oh, it's great. It's great to have you here. So um, I want to talk about the new book in a minute, but Mm -hmm. actually I was wondering if you could just take us back to your family life first um, and what it was like growing up in your house, because I believe your father was also a writer. Yeah, absolutely. My dad was a writer and I grew up with him writing stories and reading them to me. So as far as I knew, uh, this is what everybody did. They wrote their stories and they edited them. I, I heard so many versions of the same story over the years. That, um, that sort of version of writing was very, very normal to me. And it was really creative where, you know, even when I was like five or six, he'd be bouncing story ideas off me and we'd be playing games because that was how his mind worked. And he liked, I think, that that was how my mind worked as well. Um, So it was really fun. And when I was... About 10, I started showing a real interest in writing. Um, I mean, I'd always told stories, but, you know, I settled down where I was like, I'm going to write a play and I'm going to write another story and I'm going to, you know, it was what I loved to do. And um, he was really encouraging and he would sit down. I think most 10 year olds, their parents would go, oh, this is wonderful. (laughs) You would sit down and go, this is wonderful. And then start offering really nice, constructive criticism. (laughs) But it was great because he did that thing, you know, where you give the, this is wonderful. I love this character. What if, what if it was a little clearer what they were trying to do here? And And he was sort of priming me because he could see that this was something that I loved and something that I was probably going to try and get into the same way that he was. Now, at this time, at this stage, my dad wasn't published. He was querying um, publishers uh, over and over again my whole life uh, until I was about 12 or 13. So he would be writing stories and sending them off and getting them sent back. So another thing I knew from when I was very, very little was that just because you're the best writer in the world, as my dad clearly was, <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean your story is going to get picked up. And I think that was um, a really, really good foundation for me. I started querying publishers when I was when I was young, when I was 13, I wrote Cinderella's Fellow, which turned out to be my first book. And it was the first one where I went, you know what? I like this. I think it's good. I've done, I think I've done five drafts of it at that point. Now, some of these were because of my dad's editorial feedback and some of them were because it was the 90s. I was terrible at technology <laughs> and I kept accidentally deleting it. <laughs> so I, re- I rewrote the entire thing from scratch a few times. <laughs> But it was good because it helped me really hone down the book. Um, so by the time I was ready to query it, I had written a few drafts. And um, at what age did you say you were? So I was 13. Wow. Well, and my, my thinking was that I'd seen my dad get all these rejections. And at the time, you could query directly to a publisher, which is different now. Some independent publishers do take direct uh, queries from from authors, but these days you usually have to get get an agent first and go through an agent, um, which is a whole other process. Finding an agent is difficult as well. Um, But 
at the time he could query directly to a publisher. So he had these uh, these rejection forms in a file, a huge file. He collected them all and he liked looking at them. The different like Walker books who do all the pretty picture books yes. had these gorgeous rejection forms. And he loved flicking back through them because sometimes you get really nice feedback on them and it was something to work towards. And to me, that's what I wanted. I wanted that file. I wanted to get started on mine. Because <laughs> I knew that was the only way you eventually got published, was to start collecting the rejection forms. So when I thought, OK, I'm I'm ready to start querying now and I'll get all the rejection forms and then maybe I'll, you know, mid-20s, I'll have something published or maybe in my 30s. But it never occurred to me that it would get picked up when I was 13. I thought that I was just starting off and I just happened to hit the right publisher at the right time. Um, wow, that is actually such, you know, that is such a brilliant turning on its head of the whole process <laughs> of a, of rejection, isn't it? It's such a brilliant thing. I want to get started on my collection. Yeah. Like, <laughs> fantastic. It really kind of, it puts all the good stuff out there into the world and then you kind of get this correspondence back and it's not necessarily a bad thing. Absolutely, yeah. And I don't I don't know how Dad, honestly, I don't know how he actually felt about the, the forums or but that was how he framed it to me that he had his lovely collection, and I possibly it was because he saw that I was going to I was going to go down the same path, and he didn't want me to have negative associations. And I think he's right. I think hearing anything back is wonderful, and I think doing something like that, putting your work out for people to see, is really really brave, you know, for for anyone to do it because you put your heart and soul into it, and you send it off to these days, you send it off to up to a hundred agents even. Um, and maybe you get lucky with one. You know, back when I was back when I started querying, it was a case of, okay, you've sent your book off uh, to twelve agents and or twelve publishers, and one picked it up. And that's those stories of perseverance that you hear about. You know, they got rejected by twelve publishers. It's like twelve <laughs> amateur. <laughs> um, so, you know, it. But it's always it's always the case. Um, where it's, it's really brave to to send it out at all, and you should be you should celebrate that. Any aspiring writers listening to that should absolutely celebrate the fact that they've taken that first step at all. Absolutely, such good advice. And so, at the time, like you, I know you have kind of dabbled in other types mm-hmm. of writing, then too, playwriting, writing for screen and stuff. Were you doing that in your teens as well, or was that later? So I was doing it, but just for fun. Um, yeah, I wrote before I wrote Cinderella's Fella. I wrote. Um, a play so I was I was picked on a bit in school and I channeled a lot of that into my into my writing so I wrote this play about a girl who was being bullied and basically I turned it into it, it was not the most stageable play because it was kind of like a cross between Charlie and the Chocolate Factory meets like um, the Terminator or something like that <laughs> where all the bullies got bumped off in really really gory ways <laughs> um, but it was a lot of fun it was a it was really really good um, catharsis to to get all that out there and then I wrote a couple of screenplays that myself and my my sister and our friends used to sit around and read and talk about filming one day on a you know video camera but we never did so yeah I, I'd written a few things before I wrote Cinderella's Fella as well um and I, I wrote again in, I wrote a couple of plays in my teens and early twenties when I was in university, and we put them on in the, in the un- University College Dublin in the Drama Society there. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, and that's actually how I met my husband. <laughs> yeah, he came. I I read, I found stuff about you now on the internet, Ashley. Oh, you did. And one of the things that I found about you was that you met your husband, who works here, by the way. He does. Um. 
in a blood bank? I did. I met him in a blood bank. Um, we were lying beside each other in the beds having given blood. It was a, a temporary blood, like a tent set up uh, for a blood drive in UCD. So we're in the sports hall um, and we were lying in the bed beside each other having donated blood and uh, we got chatting and I told him about this play that I'd written that he was he was uh, very enthusiastic about it. it. Was a retelling of you know Othello. I'm sure. You yes. <laughs> but like <laughs> turned on its head a, a comic relief, uh, sorry, black comedy kind of version of it. Um, so a lot of a lot of what I like doing is twisting stories around. Uh, my early books were all fairy tales told from different points of view, and uh, this was essentially Othello told from Iago's point of view which it kind of is anyway but <laughs> but I twisted it around to make him the absolute main character and everyone else side characters in his evil ploy and he's bringing the the uh, the audience into his scheme to take everyone down because I know he does awful things and I thought the only way to have it be funny is if he's constantly warning people that I'm just about to be the absolute worst and don't get too attached to anyone else here. Um, so I, I told my husband about that and he came to see it and uh, yeah, wow. <laughs> he really enjoyed it and that that's that everything else is history from there. Very good. That's your own little fairy tale. Yeah. But I um I was interested what in what you said there about kind of reworking fairy tales because mm-hmm. you've worked with um you know Jack and the Beanstalk and Fionn McCool and, and Cinderella as you were saying there. And it's really interesting to me because you know a writer like Chris Colfer has made such a good living out of this well post Glee post his yeah. uh, his career in Glee. Um but my daughter reads and rereads his Land of Stories books. Mm-hmm. I mean, she cannot get enough of them. I don't know what it is about those fairy tales that really, you know, engages her. Yeah. Would you say you're kind of the same then about fairy tales? Absolutely. Yeah, I've always loved fairy tales and I still do. Um, I I think it's because they're so familiar and they're universal, which is why they've stood the test of time, you know. Um, they they teach us lessons that we didn't know we needed to learn and they teach teach them to us in ways that are, are subtle. Fairy tales aren't preachy, but, you know, Hansel and Gretel run into danger in the forest after discovering the world wasn't what they thought they thought it was because they've been <laughs> abandoned. Uh, they go face some danger. They take it on alone. They come back with, you know, riches and, and they've made themselves into, you know, heroes all by themselves without their parents being around. That's one of the kids' biggest fears, isn't it? Dealing with things without your parents. And mm. it's something that we absolutely have to do as we grow up. So that's an example. Fairy tales are universal and I think that that's why we like them so much. Um, I haven't read any of the Chris Colfer books, but they I've heard they are absolutely wonderful yeah. and really, really fun. Yes. Um, and another one's A Tale Dark and Grim, which I think was on Netflix as well, that takes a lot of the older, um, lesser known Grimm's fairy tales and, and plays with them as well. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely, I, my, my take on the fairy tales when I was younger was a lot lighter. But even now, um, with Big Bad Me, what I've done is essentially taken a lot of the vampire and werewolf lore that you know and all the tropes <laughs> and twisted them around, which is kind of a similar thing, you know. Yeah. The tropes are now what we're recognising. 
um, as essential story elements. And I, I played around with it. Some of it I did consciously, some of it I did unconsciously. It's just fun to subvert people's expectations. Yeah, absolutely. And and I suppose it makes sense, you know, if, if your dad was coming in and he was reading these stories to you and he was writing for children, it's, it makes sense that you were you continued that. So you, yeah. that's, is that why you kind of continued to write for children? Or is there, d- did you ever want to write in any other genre other than kind of children and young adult fiction? So it made sense for me to write for children when I was 13, obviously, because I was writing for myself and I found my niche and I really enjoyed it. And I think my voice became very child friendly. Um, When I got into my 20s, I decided, well, I'm an adult now, so I should try writing some chiclet or I should try. And it was fine, but I got a few chapters in and I just wasn't feeling it. I just didn't enjoy it in the same way. I don't know what it is about kids' books and about YA that I like so much. I think it might be the pace, um, the the characters. I think I I found my I found my groove early, found mid grade and YA early, and maybe I'll go and try some adult books again sometime. But for now, I really, really love writing for younger readers, and uh, I I love reading it as well. I think that's the thing that's it's faster because it has to be because you have to hold people's attention straight away. You know, with an adult book, you can get away with more, um, more description, more plots sort of going off in different directions. And you can, I think, maybe be a bit more indulgent with you know, what you want to play with. And in a kid's book and a YA book, you have to hone everything down to the bare bones without making it feel like the bare bones of the story. Um, so that's a real challenge and it's a lot of fun and I really enjoy doing that. And I think people can be a bit snobby about that sometimes, almost as if, you know, that it's some like lesser type of writing that if, and and yet you might sometimes read what would be a classic piece of literature and you're not an off or you can't really stay (laughs) with it, but there's something to be said about, you know, um, slightly shorter chapters, really punchy dialogue, you know, where you just go, I think I'll just read one more bit. I think I'll just, you know, uh, I was reading the book last night and I was going, I really need to go to sleep. I need to go to sleep. I need to go to sleep now. And yet there I was and I was still reading, you know, and and yeah. And and that for me, that's saying something because I have, you know, when you have young children or whatever, you get into a habit where a book, you read one page of a book and you're gone. Um, You know, it's a path to sleep in a way, in many ways. So, you know, my reading time needs to be done during the day a lot of time yeah. but I was really engaged in it I think that's it's important isn't it for young people who maybe feel like reading isn't for them to yeah. come across a book like this and suddenly oh it's not all books that aren't for me it's just maybe some books yeah absolutely and I think you know zippy dialogue and funny humor isn't for everyone as well some people want to really deep read and some people want to luxuriate in wonderful prose and you know submerge themselves in huge you know, long descriptions and passages. And I like that too. I love reading those books. Um, but I do think that, yeah, the the stories that feel like you could have written them yourself um, are often the ones that get overlooked. And it's the same with comedy. Comedy is, is funny and light and it doesn't necessarily make you feel like you've been challenged, even if it brings up some deeper themes. Um, you don't necessarily notice them because you've got your guard down the whole time. When you're reading a more... I guess, complex uh, book in terms of the prose, you're thinking and you're aware that you're being challenged. Whereas a lot of these books, when they feel like lighter reads, um, you're absorbing it and you're racing through it and you don't necessarily notice uh, all the things you're taking in. Um, there's definitely, definitely room for both. And I, I adore 
all genres of book. I will read anything. Um, but I do think it's it's interesting to see when people try to write these things versus uh, when they have read them and maybe been a bit dismissive. I think particularly what I write, um, it's first person as well. So my characters sound like they're just sort of, it's just me sitting down and almost talking at the computer, <laughs> um, which, which it's definitely not. And there's an awful lot of, my first draft almost does feel like that. I just bung everything down um, and it's the honing it afterwards to try and make sure that it still feels natural without wandering off in a million different directions. That's the real challenge. Um, so Cinderella's not Cinderella's fellas, sorry. <laughs> Big Bad Me <laughs> is just over 60,000 words, but at one point it was 90,000 words. Um, so trying to get that zippiness down is just a case of chopping out all the fun bits that don't actually contribute directly to the story. That's where the that's where the challenges are. Yeah, and that, that editing is just so important, isn't it, too? It's so important. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit, actually, about that YA genre. So, mm-hmm. like, young adult fiction is just really gaining momentum, isn't it, in Ireland? And, it, yeah. like, women seem to be at the forefront of that. Is that something that you have kind of found yourself when you've been going to festivals and events and things like that do you find that there's a lot of young women and or women of all ages really um, writing young adult fiction now there definitely are I have not been to a festival or event um, in quite a long time actually between COVID and then just the fact that I, I have kids and it's hard to get away um, but social media is an amazing place to connect with writers these days and I've made friends with so many wonderful Again, young women and uh, young adult writers who are women on Twitter. And, you know, we've got DM groups where <laughs> we chat about our writing woes. And we've got WhatsApp groups and that's the thing. And so, yeah, there's definitely a lot of a lot of people writing it, a lot of women writing it. And it's really supportive. It's absolutely lovely, you know. Um, these are all people that I can have little side chats with or group chats and they Everybody cheers on your book. Everybody's promoting your book. I've, you know, people I've made friends with on Twitter that have been really excited to read it and have given me really, really nice blurbs for the. They would not lie. <laughs> they, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, you know, yeah. um, risk their own reputation, but they, they enjoyed it and they gave me blurbs for the back and the front of the book, um, which is an amazing thing. And these are people whose books I was reading three or four years ago and being like, oh my God, if I ever get to talk to, say, Kat Ellis, who writes young adult thrillers and is amazing, if I ever get to talk to her, I'm going to be just a a blubbery mess of nerves. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, she's got a blurb on the back of the book now and DMs me and we chat. And it's, it's just very strange that these people that you look up to when you're starting out in your journey become your friends but everybody's really welcoming and it's a really, really supportive world, yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. Um, actually, uh, last year, just on one of our modules, we had Louise O'Neill's Asking For yeah. It. Um, and, you know, that's a text that really tackles some very tricky, difficult issues. Mm-hmm. But it does it in a way that's, you know, really accessible. And I think yeah. in, in Big Bad Me, you know, you're talking about issues of identity and issues of difference and things like that through that monster genre of werewolves and vampires, as you were talking about before. Um, and you managed to do the same thing. So, I mean, how difficult is it to write in that deceptively straightforward way? Like when you are doing all those different drafts, yeah. is that something that you're conscious of, that those themes are there in the background? Or is it something that just kind of naturally comes through anyway? 
So I don't set out to tackle things. I come up with characters and I put my characters in situations and as my characters become more real, their own issues come up to the forefront. So identity, um, belonging, family, that sort of thing uh, all naturally came up when you're talking about a girl who's a werewolf whose family has been trying to suppress that side of her and who wants to break free um, from their expectations that she's going to be the good girl who takes her meds and doesn't do what the, doesn't do what's inside or what she what she wants to do and it's it's something that I think teenagers relate to because you reach a point where you have to choose or have to try and find a balance between who you feel like you are and who you feel like your family needs you to be um so that it's it becomes universal from being about a werewolf um Whereas, you know, I've got my character Kate and she's not a werewolf. She's just a normal person um, who is dealing with the fact that she's got all this family pressure on her to be perfect and strong and take care of her younger sister. And again, her younger sister happens to be a werewolf. And by taking care of her, she has to get up and battle her in the middle of the night and get her back to bed and then get up in the morning and pretend nothing's happened. But (laughs) the pressure of having to just be perfect and be good and, you know, maybe be more responsible than than you'd like is certainly something that uh, that kids feel as well. You know, even Encanto deals with that. Luisa in Encanto, Encanto um, is definitely under the same sort of pressure. Um, but these, these themes all come up through the characters. And then as I become aware of them, um, maybe in the second or third draft, I try to serve them a bit more. They help me focus on what I need to hone down. You know, so you're looking at scenes going, okay, well, with the dialogue or with the storytelling here, what's the purpose of the scene? What's it actually doing? What are they feeling? What am I trying to get across? But that is later. Um, the first draft is always me writing and exploring. The second draft is me honing down what I've written. And then the third draft, I, I look at like, where am I going? What 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 are other people going to take away from this? As opposed to the story I'm telling myself, what do I want other people to get out of it? Mm. So it comes later and that's good for me because I feel like I'm not trying to force themes into a story. Now, things like uh, Louise O'Neill's asking for it is very different because obviously she had a topic that she wanted to explore um, and she had to take it in a way that was, as you said, accessible. And because people, especially teenagers and kids, if they don't enjoy something, they'll put it down. <laughs> they, Absolutely. They don't go, oh, this is a good and important book and I better keep keep reading and get to the end. They'll put it down because it wasn't challenging or because it upset them too much. So you have to walk that line between um, exploring something and not underplaying it for, you know, the purposes of being commercial, but at the same time being true to the subject and doing right by the subject's you know, the, the people that would would have experienced what you're talking about. Um, my friend Louise Finch wrote a book called the, the Eternal Return of Clara Hart, which I think deals with some of the same topics as asking for it. It's a time loop story about a boy who sees something happen in a party and the girl who he sees it happen to um, later dies in an accident and she runs away from the party upset. And he doesn't fully understand what he's seen because it was his friend involved. So over the course of the loops, he gets to understand what was going on and the role that he played in it um, because of the way that he's acted around his friend. And it's very, very good because it's, first of all, it's a story about um, consent that doesn't necessarily focus, it's told from a male point of view, so almost from the 
not not quite the perpetrator, but one of the enablers point of view. Um, but also it's not told in a particularly blamey way. It explores how people can do this in a way that you understand. And it's not preachy, even though it really could be. The time loop uh, effect is really helpful for seeing him slowly uncover what's going on. I think that's really interesting because you you find a way to get people in. You find a way to let them get their guard down, uh, whether that's humour or whether that's uh, really, really entertaining characters, hopefully both, you know. Um, Empathy and pathos are great, you know. You, you give somebody a reason that you're going to like them, even if they're doing unlikable things, and uh, that's it's really, really helpful for drawing a drawing a reader in. And it is something you have to be, I think, very aware of when you're writing for younger people. Mm, absolutely, that sounds really intriguing. Actually, it's and fantastic. I, one thing that I that um, it kind of brought up for me there too was that notion of allowing the reader time to reflect on it on a, an event over and over and over, and, yeah. and think about it and rethink about it and think about the nuances involved in whatever. the the scene is but yeah Yeah. it's really interesting absolutely back to your own book so um Tell us a little bit about um, your main characters, because as you were saying, you have Evie and Kevin and then you have the hot, dorky guy. <laughs> uh, sorry, Evie and Kate. Evie and Kate and the hot, dorky guy, Kevin, I should say. Yeah. Um, but I read somewhere that like those characters were kind of there sitting in your brain for quite a long time before they came out in the page. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Evie... So, well, what happened was I had I had a dream um, when I was, I think, maybe about 20. I had a dream after watching a bunch of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, and it was all centred, all the episodes were centred around Oz, the, the werewolf. Yes. Um, I had a dream that I was a werewolf and that I'd been born a werewolf and that my family had hidden it from me until I was too dangerous. And then I had to leave home to protect them. And I woke up. Wow. <laughs> I know it was really str- I have really odd dreams sometimes my my subconscious isn't always very subtle so it just sort of <laughs> if it has something it wants to tell me it just sort of shoves it right to the front but in this case I think it was just telling me you've watched too much Buffy <laughs> yeah there's no such thing as watching too much Buffy well that is absolutely true and we need to put that out there for our students who may not have you know engaged with Buffy as in the way that they should have yeah absolutely no um but yeah, so that that idea of the the werewolf um, leaving home or being born a werewolf threw up a whole bunch of questions to me um, that really intrigued me. And I played with it for years before I finally, when I was at home, uh, when I'd moved to Canada, I was at home on my own in the apartment feeling very homesick. And I think that sort of resonated with the, with the dream that I'd had where I was leaving and, you know, thinking about how much I'd miss my family. And this little werewolf character came into my head then. Um, But she was the opposite of how I was feeling. She was hyper and excitable and she was funny and got awkward around cute guys, but could also rip the head off a vampire. (laughs) And she was almost fully formed. And she brought with her this older sibling who at the time was actually a brother Um, because I guess I was too sad missing my family to send her off into the world alone but it was like well this is me this is my brother and we're going off into the world why figure it out um so I played with that for years um I wrote the first draft in about three months and toyed with it with it a bit more but because Twilight had just it hadn't just come out but the Twilight bubble was just like reaching saturation point so I knew I couldn't do anything with the story it was just fun um and the characters sat on my head 
as you said, for years after that then, um, Evie or Emily as she was at the time and her brother Jack and Kevin who popped up and became way more important to the story than I expected. Um, and it was when I watched uh, Ghostbusters, <laughs> you know, the reboot. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the one with the girls, the, the old girl cast, that I realised that I wanted to get back to my tough little girl. Uh, she's not little, she's a teenager, but in my head, because she's my she's my fictional daughter, <laughs> <laughs> I am very maternal of her. Um, I realised that I wanted to give her uh, a sister rather than a brother just because... I'd written her in such a way. Her so her brother Jack is very was very sciencey and very smart as he needs to be because he's creating all these meds with his dad to help suppress the the wolfy side. I realized what I'd done was make the boy really really sciencey, and the girl kind of not so smart about it because she needed to be otherwise she'd have figured it out. She would have figured it out years ago. Mm. Um, but having watched that Ghostbusters, I was like. I've just completely played into these tropes of girls being bad at science, boys being good at science. And and I thought it would be a much stronger story if it was sisters oh, yeah. and uh, a girly scientist. And it was, well, girly scientist sounds so patronising. So <laughs> that it's the opposite of Kate. <laughs> so, um, and I also had a brother and sister story already in the book, which had emerged later. Um, I hadn't planned it, but it had emerged later. So it was a much better balance to have two sisters there. Um, but they, they came about very, it, it was very sad for me to have to get rid of Jack because I loved him. But Kate came about very quickly. She formed herself in my head almost immediately as being not just a girl version of Jack, of being her own person, um, of being strong but vulnerable of being um, of being somebody who's really, really friendly, but if you get on the wrong side of her, she's just <laughs> she comes across really gruff. I had this idea of who she would have been if her sister wasn't a werewolf. And I tried to show that through the through the story. Um, hint at that she is actually a lot softer than she has to be, that she is actually a lot more creative and a lot more caring than her world lets her be and she's still pretty caring in the world but she you know if her sister wasn't a werewolf she would have been hanging out um, tr probably trying to save the world she'd be vegan she'd you know trying to save the environment I mean yeah <laughs> um, and she'd be an artist instead of a scientist for sure yeah um, but she decided she wanted to tell the story with Evie this was not this was not the plan um, Evie had been the sole narrator the first time around ah. um, and what happened was I got to the end of a chapter very early on Evie's been um, attacked by something in her house and Kate shows up this is chapter two it's not really a spoiler Kate shows up to save her Evie is unconscious on the ground and in the original version she just sort of wakes up in the car already on the way to this uh, this creepy murder central town that they wind up staying in and I was about to write that and Kate's voice popped into my head with the first line of the next chapter. And it wasn't what I wanted. It was Kate standing in the hallway panicking, going, oh no, what do I do now? And I was like, okay, I'll go with that. So I let her lead me and tell me what she did in the in-between after her sister's been, um, been attacked and 
before her sister knows she's a werewolf and she's got to cover it all up. And I realise this is a really interesting side of the story to tell. So it becomes dual point of view, but it wasn't intended to be. It was very much me listening to the characters and letting them tell me what they wanted to do. And again, when I was done, it was a block of a book. (laughs) Kate had a lot to say that I'd never said in the story before. And Evie had already told her story and that was already like, you know. So it was twice as long nearly. (laughs) Yeah. And I just, I just had to hack away everything. The only way I could bring myself to do my edits was to open a new folder called uh, Deleted Scenes. And I just deleted everything. I couldn't get rid of everything forever. But I could just chop it away, put in the deleted scenes. And then if I needed it, it was right there. It was always the right call. Getting rid of the the my favourite bit that was clunky and maybe was getting in the way was always the right call. Yeah. Um, but it was very, very hard to do. That's what we tell our students to do all the time, even when they're writing essays. It's just, yeah. you know, take that edited bit and pop it into a, a different file, oh. <laughs> you know. It's there. Yeah. Um, but you, you never need it. Like, it's very rare that you would ever go back to something that you deleted and go, do you know what? I think I'll put that back in. Absolutely. You might take a line or you might take an idea, but you're you're probably never going to no, do that. No, absolutely you? not. And it's, But I my mentality with editing is, oh, I can't like you said, you can't commit to actually getting rid of it because you've put you've put a lot of thought into it and you've probably worked and crafted that paragraph or that entire chapter for a very long time. So you're attached to it and you, you know what you wanted to do and it's got some of your favourite lines. So it's always just, look, where's the harm in taking it out? I'll see how it goes and maybe I'll put it back in. And that, that got really important when I started getting feedback from my agent and from my editor because they would see things that I hadn't seen. And you get your editor letter or your agent letter and your immediate response is, well, this is ridiculous. You don't understand what I'm doing. <laughs> and then you sit with it for a day or two and you go, why didn't they understand what I was doing? <laughs> and how can I make sure that readers do understand what I'm doing? And do they have a point? And if they don't have a point, how do I how do I make sure that they know what, I, what I'm actually, you know, like, should the scene go? Or do I need to entirely rewrite it so that the purpose of the scene is actually clear? Yeah, it's really tricky, isn't yeah. it, to take on board that outsider feedback when you've been just completely in that world yourself, having dreams about it, yeah. hearing voices <laughs> in your head. It seems like your thing. But yeah. then somebody else comes in with the audacity to say, actually, do you really need this bit? Yeah. Do you really need that character? So that's that must be really tricky to deal with. It is hard. And there's a bit of putting your, your ego aside. But um, eventually my agent gave me some really good advice, which was when I'm writing, I had a tendency to know what my characters were doing or what they were thinking. And then assuming if I wrote it on the page, um, it would be too obvious that, you know, I, I constantly had to hint at what people were saying or thinking or the motives. Uh, and you do to a certain extent, of course, you don't you don't blatantly say it. There's a lot of show, don't tell. But um, but you do have to make sure you're showing the right things. Um, and her advice was always to imagine that the person reading it it's reading it in a room with the TV on and people constantly trying to talk to them because they will be. They're not going to necessarily take in every single thing that you've written all the time. So if you say something subtly three pages back or a couple of chapters back, they might not remember it. So even if it's just sort of repeating in a in a subtle way or refreshing the reader's memory in a really gentle way of what's happened, um, it, it really helps the clarity of the story. 
even if you feel like you're, you're sometimes taking a sledgehammer to it. It's hard to find the the right balance, but it is important. So that that was one of the ones that I I had to really take on board was not to assume everybody knows what's going on in my characters' heads, not to assume they've read and remembered everything that I've written, because I know that I know the story inside out. And nobody else does. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really good advice. Uh, there is a, a lot of um, a lot of rewriting for me. Sometimes my editor my editor wasn't right, but they usually had a point. There was usually something that was working. And um, one of the hardest things for me was when somebody said, "This is probably just a little tweak," and I looked at it and said. No, you're right. That is a problem. But the bigger problem is this yes. scene, which remember I talked about taking your favourite chapter out. That was my favourite chapter. Something very bad had happened and it was kind of the aftermath of that. And I'd written it in a certain way that didn't make sense. And I realised from them highlighting the little thing that that should have happened, the broader problem was was much, much bigger. I had to take it out I had to rewrite everything I actually had to email them and say listen I need I need an extra week on my edits because this is big but you're going to like it I promise um, and it meant rewriting like three chapters completely wow but it, it was worth it in the end See, and like, I can't tell you what it was <laughs> no we don't want any spoilers <laughs> we don't want any spoilers because people we want people to rush out and, and buy it after yeah. this and so do you have you know I mean obviously what you hope for is that you know it will be really popular and people will love it yeah um, would you like to write another one would you like to write a series of books around this kind of these characters I would love to write a series of books around these characters. Um, I still feel like they have a lot of stories to tell, but it all depends um, if the book does well, uh, if it does well enough to be commercially feasible. Um, and this is this is another thing that people don't necessarily understand about series. If your book does well, that's great, but it doesn't necessarily mean you'll get a series because you sell the first book in a series and lots of people buy it because they're interested and curious. The second book in a series tends to sell less books mm. because you'll have your readers and your readers will buy it. People are unlikely to pick up the second book in a series just because they're curious. So some people read the first book and that was enough for them. So it doesn't just have to be successful. It has to be like the proper kind of, OK, this is really worth it. This is the sort of book that if it sells less than the last book, we'll still be happy with these sales. Mm-hmm. So that's... That's hard to necessarily hit. Um, you don't. You don't want to be basing uh, your your writing on the idea that it's going to be a series necessarily. No. Like there used to be a lot of open ended books when I was uh, when I was reading YA when I was in the late nineties. There was books that would end, and you need to pick up the last one, the next one. Where like the Babysitters Club books when we were younger would always end on a, a cliffhanger because they wanted you to buy the next one, but they knew that you would. Yeah. Um, but this is much more of a standalone with serious potential and I would love for it to happen but I don't know if it will um, Fingers crossed Fingers crossed and obviously fingers crossed for Netflix or a movie or something like yes. that Yes, wouldn't that be lovely? I mean you, yes, can, you can really see it though I mean when you're reading the book it is it is all very visual you know as you were we were talking about earlier before we, we started to record just 
you know, the dialogue is very sparky. Thank it's, you. you know, it's very um, conducive, you would imagine, to that type of um, adaptation. So who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> um, and so, listen, best of luck with the launch. Best of luck with the book. And hopefully we might have you back in another time to talk about your next book. That would be wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it would be fantastic. And thank thanks you. so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Jen. It was wonderful. Thank you. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you.